The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. For a free sample copy of the latest issue, you can visit our website. It's premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But today is a bit of a special episode because I am down in Eastbourne on the south coast of England talking to Aaron Keyes. Aaron is a worship leader and songwriter responsible for well-known songs including Sovereign Over Us and My Soul Finds Rest. He's released critically acclaimed albums including Dwell and live projects in the living room and through it all. Although based in America, he travels widely and has co-written songs with English worship leaders including Stuart Townend and Pete James. He's also the founder of 10,000 Fathers Worship School which seeks to change the way the world worships by changing the way leaders lead. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you. So exciting. So here on the profile, we always like to start by asking about a person's background and faith journey. Can you uh, tell me something of what life was like growing up and where Christian faith came into that? Yeah, so I'm the third generation pastor's kid, right? So my dad was pastor, his dad was pastor. Um, And I grew up in Christian school, Christian home, but it wasn't until college when I was about 19 in a time of worship that I, that I kind of went from knowing God was right to tasting that God was good. Mm-hmm. So it was through worship that like I fell in love with the Lord instead of just knew I probably needed to agree with the Lord, you know? <laughs> and so um, ever since then, I graduated from college, got married, and it's been like, God, if you could change my life through a simple time of worship, then I'm in if you want to use my life to facilitate times of worship for other people. That's kind of where we're at. I understand um, growing up, you've talked about being quite a legalistic environment um, with your parents and church background. Tell me more about that. Well, I was born at Bob Jones Hospital. I don't know if that means anything to you, but in the United States, that's like, that is, I mean, ground zero of fundamentalism for Christianity. Okay. You know? So, yeah, we were basically... We were Pharisees, all right? So we, we, we wash the outside of the cup and don't worry too much about the inside. The kind of hypocritical element. Yeah, there. I mean, people don't mean to be hypocrites. And I'm not saying that they all are, but the emphasis is definitely on behavior, not on becoming the kind of people who would naturally behave a certain way. So I think that's been a huge growth for us in the last, oh gosh, um, 20 years, right. 25 years. My, my dad kind of led the way on that. Um, from leading a church that was very much, um, you know, exclusive to very welcoming to now all out kind of charismatic. So we've all been on this growth and we're all on a growth, right? I mean, of understanding grace and walking with the Lord. Mm. So I don't I don't disparage any of those old days. I'm glad I'm not there anymore, but they brought me mm. here. Sure. So and this was growing up in South Carolina. South Carolina yeah. So is this kind of Bible Belt territory? Oh, of man, the... it's the buckle. The buckle of the Bible Belt. Mm-hmm. And when was that concept of grace first awakened to you? Well, through my dad. Um, my dad had a big heart to see more people come to our church than perfect people, you know, and pi- pious, polished people. Um, and so he actually read a, read a book called Grace Awakening that ended up turning the whole culture of our church, which ended up launching a new church that my family planned in 1996. Um, and that was where grace started becoming actual like boots on the ground instead of a nice idea to agree with. Mm. So kind of all the way back then. Wow. Can you pinpoint a moment where you feel like you had a kind of calling from God to, to lead worship? Was there a kind of 
substantial, significant moment where that became a part of your life? Yeah, so the it was the summer in California between my sophomore and junior year of college when I fell in love with the Lord. I went out there to be a river guide, like a rock climbing guide, wilderness guide, you know, for high school kids, like, you know, 15 to 18 year olds. Um, and the worship leader at this camp left halfway through the summer. He was upset about something. Imagine that. And so they needed someone to lead worship that night for about 300 students. And someone said, Aaron can do it. And I was like, no, he can't. I didn't sing or anything. I played piano. That was about it. Um, but they threw me up there to lead worship that night. And it was atrocious, but God was really <laughs> gracious. And so I ended up leading for the rest of that summer, and we saw God do incredible stuff. People getting saved, people getting healed, relationships getting put back together. And by the end of the summer, we went on a 24-hour so, like solo, where you fast and go into the mountains and camp out and just, you know, you pray. It's kind of a monastic kind of thing. And during that 24-hour solo, I, felt, I had the first vision I've kind of ever had in my life um, that was a room full of people worshiping. Um, it was... It, it was I hadn't seen anything quite like this before. So I went back to my college and invited some friends, and we began worshiping together. By the end of that year, our little friends group of about six had grown to about 600. They were worshiping together every Thursday night. And I remember looking up from the piano one night. It was a new room that didn't exist before at my university, and it was the exact vision I'd seen on that mountain a year before. Um, and I realized, wow, okay, this is a big deal. And so ever since then, it's been like, I don't know how long God wants me doing this, but um, I just, from then, I've just said, okay, God, I'm in if you want to use me. And I just feel like he keeps saying, let's walk down the road a little while. And for the first while, um, it was mainly, I was like, God, give me the heart of David. I want the anointing of David, you know, the songs for the, your people. I want to bring healing to people under torment like Saul was. I want to give me that anointing. Now, um, I'm like, God, give me the Samuel anointing. Show me Davids. Like, how can I find the Davids and launch those guys? Um, instead of launching spears at them, how can I help propel them into what God's called them to do? So, I don't feel like leading worship is what God's called me to do. I feel like making disciples is what he's called me to do. Leading worship was just kind of the experience and the credentials to allow me to do it now how mm. I am. You've been known, of course, as a worship leader. Um, I wonder if that might slightly be changing because of what you've just said. You feel called to make disciples, and, and that is really what you, what, what a lot of your ministry is now. Which brings us on, of course, to 10,000 Fathers. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about what it is? I understand it's a worship school, but perhaps, yeah. uh, perhaps a little different to what people might assume a worship school would be like. Yeah, so we started, I started coming over to Europe about 10 years ago, working with Kingsley Music, writing with guys like Stuart and Graham Kendrick and Paul Oakley and these guys, and that was a really sweet time. Whenever I would travel, I would get home and then the pastor would call me and say something like, hey, do you know anyone that could come lead worship for us at our church like you guys did? And it wasn't because I was such a great singer, I'm not, or because my band was so great, we weren't. Um, but they would always say, we would love to be led in worship like like you with the Bible. And the fact that that was a rare thing to be led by a worship leader who used the Bible or, or you know, at least tr treasured the Bible um, was a concerning thing. So 10 years ago, my wife and I and our pastor, we began praying, we got together and said, what can we do? Because there are a hundred churches asking us for a worship leader right now. 
and I've basically sent out the three people that I know who I trust. You know, um, there's a lot of people who I know who I don't trust, and then there's a lot of people I trust who I don't know. Yeah. So it was like, who are the people that I know? So we sent them to churches really quick, and we're out. And we were doing internships at that point, like through our church, young worship leaders, like, let's read a book, we'll get coffee once a week, you know. But it was like, this is not working. This isn't enough. There's a mass, it's like the fields are wide under harvest, and there's not laborers. So we prayed, and we said, we want to make disciples, and we want to raise up as many leaders as we can. So we bought a house where we could have leaders just come live with us indefinitely. So for the first few years, we'd have four worship leaders at a time. Um, just come live in our home and be a part of our family and go on the road with my band and leave with me at church and pray for the sick with me at the hospital. Like, here's my normal life. Just come along for the ride. So we did that for three years, and then we were pretty fried. We took a year off, and after that next year, when we came back, we knew we want to make disciples. We want to spend most of our energy reproducing ourselves spiritually, not just creating great moments spiritually. Um, we love it's great I love conferences like this you know I love to inspire people to love God more that's great but John 15 says I've appointed you to bear fruit that lasts much fruit that lasts and I just realized most of my travel ministry I hope it bears fruit but I'm out of town before you could ever tell I'm casting seed you know I'm not naive enough to think that every seed that I plant becomes this amazing fruitful harvest so it was like okay, a shift of paradigm from the first 10 years of leading worship to now the last 10 years has been more about raising up worshipers who can lead worship than just leading it myself. I still love leading it. I, I need to be a practitioner. I'm still on staff at my church. I still lead on Sundays. I mean, I'm not like Ivory Tower out there. Back in my day, we used to do it this way. You know, <laughs> not like that. Um, but very much, I'm almost 40. You know, I mean, how long can the top player play in the Premier League? Maybe 15 years, you know? What's Wayne Rooney? He's pushing it, you know? Um, Maybe 20, you know, maybe. But how long can you coach on the sidelines? Triple that, you know? So my, I feel like my season on the field, every, if I just think about my season on the field as a player, um, every year that window closes a little bit more. I get cheesier. I get older. I start putting, you know, chorus on the acoustic guitar. It's like, only old people do that. You know, the sound gets cheesy. Music moves on, and it should. Um, but that that's only if I'm thinking of myself as the performer, myself on the stage. I'm Every year I'm getting a little less relevant. Um, my music's getting a little less... Um, it's a little more cheesy. Uh, but my season on the sideline, coaching people on the field, every year my window gets... more open and the words get weightier and my experience gets more meaningful Um, it doesn't matter if my music gets cheesier you know I'm able to do so much more through other people and that's what leadership is about getting things done through people sure I've I've never interviewed a worship leader certainly not a worship leader in their 30s who would say that their music is getting more cheesy as time goes on and to be honest I can't think of many worship leaders certainly not those as as young as you are you're 39 who would talk so much about raising other people up I tend to find people perhaps in their 50s and 60s will talk a lot about the next generation but you seem to have a handle on that quite early so is there something to be learned here that actually people need to start passing on from a younger age and not waiting until you are in your 50s and 60s to start talking about the next generation? Man, think about just physiologically and biologically. Um, it's important that you get to a certain point of maturity before you begin reproducing, right? 
So it gets messy when kids have kids. So 15-year-olds can have kids. That doesn't mean they should. Um, But it also, at some point, if your physical growth begins to curtail, you enter into a season of reproductivity. Mm -hmm. Um, We all get that in the natural world. Mm -hmm. We do not get that in the spiritual world. We think it's about us just growing spiritually until we're giants spiritually. That's not normal you know that's i know that's a normal paradigm it's about me growing and so you'll find people in their 50s and 60s leaving churches saying i'm just not really being fed anymore well maybe you're not supposed to maybe you're supposed to be feeding you know maybe this thing isn't just about you growing and growing and growing at some point you're supposed to begin reproducing and in the natural realm when a couple has been married for a while and and haven't reproduced um, but they want to that's heartbreaking. Infertility is a heartbreaking reality um, for a lot of people. We've wrestled with it. We've prayed. We've prayed with so many couples. We've seen God do miracles in so many couples, and there's still couples that we're praying for that we haven't seen miracles yet. But infertility is a heartbreaking reality in the natural realm. Infertility is the status quo in the spiritual realm. People don't even expect to reproduce, and when someone comes along who does reproduce, they think that's weird. People are like, this is so odd. I think it's odd that people don't reproduce. The only thing, Je- I mean, Jesus is like, after everything, after all of his teachings, all of his his final words were this. Hey, wherever you go, make disciples. Yeah. So the, the only word in the Great Commission that's a command is make, not go. It gets translated, go into all the world, making disciples. That's bad. The actual Greek is, as you are going, it's a part of going, make disciples. So where that means if you emphasize go, not make, then you think it's about going somewhere else to do what you don't even do at home. So this is a lot of missions, right? I mean, yeah. I love missionaries. I love missionaries. I love, 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 love it. Yeah. But if we think that we're going to be great at doing something overseas that we don't even do across the street, mm-hmm. that's not <laughs> – we are delusional. Mm-hmm. So if you emphasize going, you emphasize traveling. If you emphasize making disciples – now we're emphasizing our whole yeah. life. So wherever I go, I, yeah. I make disciples. So if I'm a worship leader, I disciple worship leaders. If I was an electrician, I try to disciple electricians. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If yeah. I'm just a mom at home, I've got stuff to offer other young moms at home. So no matter what I'm doing, I can bring people into that. Bring people into my real life, not my perfect polished life. Not my church life, whatever that is. Um, and I can step into their real life. And what we've seen it's bringing people into our homes. I mean, yeah, we study the Bible. We've had Chris Tomlin, Tim Hughes. We've had amazing sessions, you know. Uh, but when we ask people, what was the best part of school? What was the most transformative? What they've said every single time is just being in your home. Being in your home with your kids at your table. That normal life. Mm-hmm. And that's, I feel like, you know, most of life is kind of normal. 90% of Jesus' life was normal. Um, and I think, you know, from my kids at least, they, they learn as much from me getting it wrong as mm. me getting it right. This this brings me on to a, a wonderful kind of concept I heard you talk about um, on another on another podcast. Uh, this idea of family dinner. And this isn't just your family. This is an extended community on a Tuesday night. And I was really kind of quite inspired to hear this. And it's it's similar to what you're just saying about having people around and sharing life together. Tell me what tell me what family dinner means for yeah. you. What so is we've it? got we have to have our life is crazy between travel, worship schools, 
um, normal church, our kids' school, you know, soccer teams and all stuff. Our life's crazy. So we've put some rocks in the river of our calendar that everything else flows around. Um, so, like, Monday is our our immediate family. We do soup night. So Megan makes soup. It's our kids. We do dinner together. Tuesday is we call family dinner, like you're mentioning, which is where we bring our whole worship school community around, our staff. So there's probably 50, I think it's between 50 and 60 people wow. that do this. And we've actually just branched it into two. So now there's lots of coordination in two different houses at one time. The kids, like, level your house, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's like a swarm of locusts that come through. And so we all kind of share the burden of hosting this thing. Yeah. So maybe only once every other month, you yeah. know, you're actually hosting it. But every Tuesday, and, you're, and our kids just love it. And sometimes there's intentional time after we eat, and we'll get all the adults together, and we'll have a babysitter for the kids, and we'll talk about our marriages. Um, once a month, we'll have all the guys, we'll hang out afterwards and just do accountability. Once a month, the girls will do that. And once a month, we'll try to do something intentional with the kids, or in the neighborhood of the house that we're in. So just blessing the neighbors. Um, so it's a good like rock in the river for us. On Thursday mornings, we worship and we pray together as a community. And then just a lot of organic life, you know, in the weekends and obviously church on Sundays. So we, we are trying to really have a, a life that's on mission together, not just a project that we're working on together. Mm-hmm. But like our normal life now is just leaning towards discipleship, community, family, and mission. So obviously 10,000 Fathers is based where uh, you are in America and Atlanta, mm-hmm. but you've also... Uh, are launching 10,000 Fathers in Brighton in the UK. Tell me about that. Yeah, so our first class was last year. We have 10 worship leaders from around the UK um, that all have expressed interest in coming to Atlanta, but we said, well, what if we... We're already coming over to Mission Worship every year. Like, what if we just did a worship school for a few days after that? So we started it last year, 10 precious worship leaders from the UK, and they've been huddling together every week for the last year, working through the same course curriculum as people who come to Atlanta. Um, So they will be, I'll get to see a bunch of them tonight. Um, They'll be around for the weekend, and then we'll be doing worship school next week in Brighton, and we'll also be starting a new class of of worship leaders as well who begin their 18-month journey. So the way school works is basically a week together, and then weekly coaching for six months, a week together, Weekly coach for six months, a week together, weekly coach for six months. But um, the Europe school, um, that's hard for us to get our whole team over here. It's, it's, it's different for us because we love having people in our home. Like I've already said, we, we're just big on hospitality. I think the Bible's a lot bigger on hospitality than we are in society. And so we're, we're really trying to do that. It's just hard to do it when you don't have a house, you know? <laughs> Um, when it's hard to host 20 people in my hotel room. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my neighbors might not like that too much. So um, we're just praying about the next steps for 10,000 Fathers in Europe. We, we don't feel like we have the answers to anything. We just want to help find who are the Davids, yeah. who are the Miriams. Yeah. Like and this is, this is training people both in the kind of practicalities of how do you play guitar, how do you sing, how can you grow in that, but also in, in the spiritual side of it and the discipleship side of it as well, yeah. marrying those two things together. Yeah, and we talk about character and competency. So the first six months is the character of a worship pastor. The main paradigm shift to that first six months is worship leaders lead songs, but worship pastors lead people. Mm. We don't need any more worship leaders. Um, big point being, if your spiritual leadership were to end, if your musicality were taken away, then you're not a spiritual leader. So if I lost my ability to sing today, 
would my church still recognize me as a spiritual leader tomorrow? And if they would not, then I am not. I'm not a spiritual leader today. I'm a singer. So we've conflated those two things, and that's a recent history, uh, historical occurrence in the church. That did not, there was no such thing as a worship leader in the New Testament. There's not one mention in the New Testament of worship. That's, I mean, that's a big deal. There's plenty of worship, plenty of leadership, zero worship leadership. It's not in 1 Corinthians 12, not Romans 12, not 1 Corinthians 14, not Ephesians 4, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, worship leaders. This is, it's, <laughs> it's not, not there. there. It's not there. So what, we need to like own that and go, so then what does it mean to lead in the church? Yeah. Well, we need apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. We need the spiritual gifts, but we need to recognize just because you can carry a tune and play a couple chords doesn't make you a spiritual leader. Or even make you spiritually gifted. In our society, that gives you a platform to be able to leave it. But having an op- like having the right to say something doesn't mean you have something to say, you know, or something worth saying. So we spend the first six months on character. So identity, spiritual disciplines, formation. The second six months is then on craft, competency, so skill. Actually, how well are you playing? How well are you writing? How well are you singing? How well are you preaching and teaching and communicating? Um, and the last six months is on kind of commissioning to go and make disciples, to go and do for others what we've done yeah. for you. So, so do you think there is a problem sometimes in churches of, of worship leaders, worship pastors, choosing people to play in the band who are great at guitar or fantastic drummers, and perhaps the spiritual side of the person's character isn't considered? Oh, well, sure. Absolutely, man, because we... We value competency today, you know, but that's just not what you see in the New Testament. You see character. So if you look in the pastoral epistles, so First, Second Timothy, Titus, the stuff that marked leaders in the New Testament church primarily was all character stuff. You know, you're faithful to your wife. You can encourage people in sound doctrine. Your kids aren't, you know, you're not a drunk. It's like all care. It's, it seems like a pretty low bar if you look at it, actually. Um the competency stuff it talks about is being really good at hospitality, yeah. stuff like that. So we, we, you know, and I'm not saying your drummer needs to be Pope Francis. but um, I would love to see Pope Francis drumming. Yeah, Wouldn't that be amazing? He played very humbly. You know? <laughs> um, but, but we need to be aware of who is leading our communities to think reflectively about God, mm-hmm. what God is like. Um, I mean, the prayers that we pray, the songs we choose, songs we write, things we say, this matters. And in a lot of ways, like our songs, you know, they get into people's brains and just percolate throughout the week more than a sermon does. And that's the crazy thing for me is that our vicars or our pastors or preachers, they've been to uni, they've been to seminary, maybe maybe they've done a curacy, they've been trained at all all kinds of levels. Our worship pastors have not. Mm. They watched YouTube. Mm. And all of a sudden, they've got just as much influence and yeah. just as much time to influence a community and what they believe about themselves, about God, about the world, mm-hmm. as this leader who is proficiently trained. Mm-hmm. So we're just trying to say, um, yeah. not that that's a huge problem. The problem is that 
we need to train up these leaders then yeah. um, and make sure that w- what they are leading is actually worth following. Yeah. And, and often, I know in many churches in, in this country, there's a difference in practice. In more traditional churches, often the vicar or the pastor will choose the hymns, will choose the songs. And a lot more, I guess, contemporary expressions of worship, it, it is often just the worship leader in the week will figure out what songs to do. And, and sometimes there's no link up with the pastor or, or perhaps there'll just be a little thought about what would the response song be to mm-hmm. kind of tie it in with the preach do you have any views on that how that dynamic should work between a, a worship pastor and, and a kind of pastor of a church yeah i don't like this dichotomy but i'll use it just for the sake of illustration so when jesus says the father's looking for those who worship in spirit and truth i think it's so important that we not separate spirit from truth um, sometimes in worship we can tend to think of phrases like worship and the word so the band brings the worship preacher brings the word that's dangerous if worship is being done ancillary to the word or vice versa, we're doing them wrong. <laughs> so they've got to be integrated. So not only does I think our worship leading need to be saturated with scripture, our preaching should be saturated with worship. Um, and then when the two, when the preaching and the worship are complementing one another and fitting together, that's when I think you find really powerful ministries that their impact goes way beyond their immediate reach. So if I think of you know, a few ministries that have really shaped worship in the last 10 years. I would think of, you know, Passion. I would think of maybe like Hillsong mm-hmm. or Bethel. Mm-hmm. At each of these places, you have a powerful leader, prophetic kind of speaker. So Louis Giglio or Brian Houston or Bill Johnson. And a musical accompaniment that takes it further than just the sermons would. Now, if you separated... Uh, passion music from Louis Giglio, neither of them are what they would be with, you know, on their own. And you can find better bands, the Passion Band, and you can find, well, Louis is a pretty amazing preacher, but there are plenty of amazing preachers. But it's it's when these two things combine mm. that things get movemental, yeah. you know? So I feel like, yeah, we absolutely should be doing everything that we can. And so my role as I lead in my community, in my congregation, in worship, I, I'm not doing my thing. I'm wanting to identify what is my pastor sensing for our community. And then I bend everything I can around how can we serve that? Mm-hmm. How will we respond to that? How, how should we begin to approach that before he comes up? Mm-hmm. Um, do I need to write a song? That's mm-hmm. the response to that. Yeah. So, and, and even traveling, I don't like go town to town and here's our set. Here's one hour. We always start with this, then we play this, then we end with this. Like, I no. can't do that. No. That's um, to me. That's Moses striking the rock after God said, "Speak to it." Like the first time he struck it, and God told him to. The second time, God said, "Speak," and he struck it. Yeah. Sometimes I can do that. I'm not doing what God's saying to do now. I'm just doing what worked last time. Yeah. And God's gracious. Water flows out of the rock anyway, but it really messes up Moses and actually keeps Moses from the promised land. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio, and that was the first half of my interview with the worship leader, Aaron Keyes, speaking to me down in Eastbourne during the Mission Worship Conference just at the tail end of last year. Stay with us. There's lots more from Aaron Keyes coming up after this. We're on air with broadcasting legend Jeremy Vine in the latest Premier Christianity magazine as he tells us how he lost his faith and then found it again and life behind the mic on his radio and TV programmes. 
Plus, we profile three of the UK's fastest-growing churches as they share their secrets on why their congregations are multiplying members. And as 2018 begins, read about five spiritual practices that could renew your relationship with God in the new year. All that plus news, reviews and your favourite columnists. Ask for a free copy of the January edition, premierchristianity.com slash free sample. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. It's The Profile. It's Saturday afternoon and I am speaking to the worship leader, Aaron Keyes. Let's listen in to the second half of our conversation. I wanted to ask you um, about something I read on your website just recently that I think ties in with a lot of what you've already said, but to me was quite striking, quite brave, quite honest. It says this, uh, let's face it, the worship industry today is in a precarious place. Our contemporary worship culture is more about great concerts than the Great Commission. Many worship leaders today are more interested in gigs than growth, which leads them to be more committed to their fans than their families. Sadly, I can speak from my own experience. Um, And you go on, you say worship culture today is more about being professional than prophetic. Worship services are more about production than presence. Worship leading is more about tours than tears. If you disagree, just ask anyone what comes to mind when you hear the word worship leader today. Ten times out of ten, I bet you'd hear more about a great show than a great shepherd. Really bold words that I imagine a lot of people would agree with. But how have people in the worship music industry world responded to comments like that? Um, None of them disagree, but none of them know what to do either. And, I mean, I'm friends with some of the leading worship leaders in the world. And I ask them, like, look, you realize if you started training worship leaders, you'd have a thousand people. You know, we struggle to get 15, you know. Like, if you said, I'm going to disciple worship leaders for next year, you'd have a thousand on a a waiting list. Please make disciples, you know. But um, these guys feel like God's called them to do what they're doing. And they're very busy and very successful doing what they're doing. They don't feel like they could put all of that on hold to do this other thing. So I'm not saying that they're not doing what God's called them to do. I bless them, and I'm thankful for what they're doing. But I just know that if we don't train up the next generation, um, I mean, I've spent a lot of time with the Vineyard in the last six months. So I was with the Vineyard in Ireland last week. I was with the Vineyard in Scandinavia this summer. And what I've told the Vineyard is, look, 20 years ago, when I was first starting to lead worship, it was all Vineyard. It was the songs. They were amazing. They were something I'd never heard before. So powerful. Yeah. And when I think about worship today, if I list the top ten streams influencing worship, the vineyard's not even in it. But when I go to vineyard churches, they're singing battle songs. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what happened? Mm-hmm. And I think what happened is they didn't make disciples. The leaders got old. Uh, or the leaders left and went to other things. And I, I've been trying to challenge the vineyard and say, look, you guys bring something that's so special and so unique. It really ministered to me 20 years ago. I mean, when I see glimpses of it still today, it really does. But it's just been trounced by these other voices. And trying to say, that, that, that's not to disparage them, but to say, if you look in the book of Nehemiah, you find uh, an, a leader in Nehemiah who knows how to get the job done when he's around. But then at the end of the book, there's this one chapter, Nehemiah 13. And Nehemiah goes away for one year. And in his time away, all the stuff that he worked for disappears. He comes back and he is ticked. 
The people are marrying Moabites. The kids aren't even speaking their native language. Someone's moved into the temple using it like uh, an apartment. Nehemiah is so mad, he's spitting on people. He's ripping out people's beards. I mean, it's hilarious. Read Nehemiah 13. He's throwing furniture out of this tabernacle, out of the temple. Uh, he is hacked. And to me, it's such a powerful illustration of what happens when we only know how to get success, but we don't think about succession. Mm -hmm. If we have to be around for this thing to work, then we're not doing it like Jesus. Because what Jesus did was he reproduced himself. And actually, when Jesus was gone, that's when things actually went exponential. And he said it would. He said, if you believe me, you'll do the things that I've done, and even greater things. And they did. They actually... Jesus' handkerchief never healed anybody, neither did his shadow. Theirs did. Jesus didn't make it to India. Thomas did. So they actually got what Jesus carried. And that's, that's all we're trying to do is say, look, there are so many people around the world. I, I fell in love with the Lord in worship. I want people everywhere around the world to love the Lord. A bunch of them would if they could be in an opportunity to experience his goodness in the time of worship. But if we're just going through the motions in that time of worship... We're not thinking very carefully. We're not thinking critically. Um, it is a sensitive time mm. in our world right now. Mm. A lot of our nations are divided. Um, I mean, goodness, my nation is a disaster. Um, <laughs> Britain wants to secede. Spain's coming apart. Ireland's already divided. Like The whole thing is a mess. And I think people are looking for a word from God. Mm -hmm. And to, in order to give that kind of word, with a prophetic authority, mm -hmm. but a pastoral sensitivity mm -hmm. to know what not to say, um, to know how to say it, you know? So we're here at a worship conference in Eastbourne. You can hear the seagulls. And tomorrow you are doing a session on women in ministry, which is interesting. A man leading a, a session on women in ministry. <laughs> what are you going to say? And why is there going to be a seminar on women at a worship conference? Yeah, well, I think it's up to the people who have power to to raise up the people who do not and give them power. So that's what Jesus did. That's what God's done with us. He has all the power in the world, and he stoops down to make us powerful. He becomes weak so that we can become strong. That's what we see on the cross. So I have to talk about this because if we're going to change the way the world worships, we can't just you can't run a race with one leg. And that's exactly what the body of Christ has done by precluding women from leading in ministry or, or abnegating them to only children or foreign missions or something because of one verse in the New Testament that has 25 interpretive problems that has barred 51% of the world from leading in the kingdom of God. What verse is that? That's 1 Timothy 2.12. That's 1 Timothy where Paul says... I am not permitting a woman to exercise authority over a man. Um, that one verse, denominations have split over it. Uh, I was with an incredible woman leading uh, last week in Ireland who her parents, to this day, feel like she's out of line for leading a church, for leading in worship, for preaching. Um, she is an anointed. She has character. She has gifting. And maybe a her lot parents, of people think Her that. parents think she shouldn't be worship leader. Oh, and her parents are missionaries. Yeah, because so they've grown up thinking that what Paul said to Timothy in that place, in that time, is God's truth for all places at all times. Mm -hmm. It's going to be hard in an hour, but I want to use 
I mean, basically any platform that I've got. I don't. Let's be honest. I don't have much of one. But I, I want to use any platform that I have, not to go higher, but to bring as many people up as I possibly mm-hmm. can. And for me, women are just left in the dust of church leadership. I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in the US, mm-hmm. in most denominations, women are still uh, excluded mm-hmm. from a lot of leadership, from, I think, terrible theology and terrible hermeneutics. I want to talk about another hot topic, if I may, and oh, that is uh, diversity yeah. in the worship music world. And um, there's a guy called Noel Robinson, who I know you know yeah. in this in this country, uh, a worship leader. And um, even though he would describe himself as a worship leader, he's said to me in previous interviews that what's often happened in the past is his worship music has been put into the category in the Christian bookshop or on the shelf That's in whatever funny. store of gospel rather than worship and he's concerned that just because he's black that people immediately pigeonhole him as gospel and not as a worship leader and I heard you recently talking about this the same subject of diversity and you were saying how there's a one-way stream of translation and so what will happen is other non-English speaking nations will um, translate English songs into their language but of course, I can't think of any songs that I sing on a Sunday that have been translated from a culture, a country that doesn't speak English. Oh yeah, sure you can. You just don't know it. Oh really? How great thou art! Number two hymn of all time. Okay, only behind Amazing Grace. That's a Swedish song. Really, I oh, didn't that know that. Very good. It's translated to Swedish, didn't to German, that. to Russian, eventually to English. What God always wanted from Exodus, you see it all through the New Testament, and you see it in, in Revelation. He wants a kingdom of priests. He wants everyone bringing their offering. You carry something that I don't carry. I carry something you don't carry. So we both need to offer it. But what we've settled for and what what Israel settled for was, no, we don't want to be a kingdom of priests. We just want to have one priest. Just you do it, and then you just stand in the gap for us. Um, That's not what God wanted. He wanted everyone to be uh, a priest, and he's going to be their king. When I speak with black worship leaders, I am, my eyes are awakened and I feel so embarrassed to have been so blinded by exactly how white worship is. Um, and the way that I'm saying it now is worship is too male. That's why we're talking about women. And worship is too pale. That's why I care about diversity. Um, we have got to do a better job of dignifying what God's doing in other nations besides just our Western Anglo nations. So, I mean, if you go most places in the world now and they're time, having a time of worship... They're singing songs from Sydney or the UK or the US. But, but, and even and that's, people, people celebrate that. I mean, yeah. you know, people will say, this is wonderful. Isn't it amazing that God's blessed this worship leader and allowed their song to travel all over the world? Yeah. Are you saying that we shouldn't be so excited about that idea? No, I think that's great. Globalization can be great, but when it becomes colonization, it's not great because it's not empowering the dignity of people. It's stripping the dignity of those people and conferring my stuff onto your culture. So if they're singing if they're singing my song in Ghana, I I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But all I know is right now there's only one these streets are one way. Right. But historically they haven't been. And I'm trying to say right. How great thou art. How great thou art. That what other songs are we missing? Like, what other songs are, are being born around the world? Look, if, if of the top 200 worship songs in the world, there are only 18 songwriters. 18 writing the top 200 songs in the world? 
Like, are you telling me there's only 18 good songwriters in the world? No chance. There's not 2 million, but there's more than 18. And that that's because, you know, industry works this way. Like, you've got some people at the top, and then most people down at the bottom. But when I go to Sweden, I'm not thinking they need to be singing my songs in Swedish. I'm hearing the songs that they're singing, and I'm try, trying to translate them so we can yeah. sing them in Snellville, and that's exactly what we've done. So I heard a song in Sweden at the Love Song Conference probably four or five years ago, a song called Clippin'. It was stunning. I have no idea what it was about. I just knew it didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard, and I wanted to sing it. And so I got in touch with the writer afterwards, and I said, can you send me that lyric and what it means? I want to sing that song. I just need to do an English version of it for my church. And so we worked on it together, basically rewrote the song uh, in English, and now it's called Crying Holy. I actually led it at this conference last year. It's one of my church's favorite songs. Wow. And I'm trying to do everything I can to find songs that weren't mm-hmm. born in the USA mm-hmm. and write songs that yeah. are coming from different cultures than just our own because I think if we're, if we're not careful, our worship is going to become yeah. very vanilla very boring. Is is there scope for you to do a do an album, do a project under your own name, or Ten Thousand Fathers that just takes stuff from around the world? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking for those songs. So I actually met with the CMPA two years ago. I went to Amsterdam and spent. I basically did a two hour lecture with all the heads of publishing for the different worship industries wherever they are in the world, and talked about this for two hours wow. about worship has translation has only gone one way. Mm-hmm. And we've got to change that. Mm-hmm. So I basically said, send me your songs. Like, I'll rewrite them. I've got a hundred worship leaders through our school who graduated who can help rewrite them. I often talk to people, tend to kind of be my age, maybe in their 20s, certainly younger people who um, want to almost write off worship music as all sounding the same. They say it's all kind of pop, rock, drums, four on the floor, call it what you will. It's very similar sounding. And, you know, some people are bringing in some more electronic elements, but even then... There seems to be a lot of younger people who are really into their music who are a bit frustrated with the the dominant scene, if you like. Uh, I can see you're nodding along and and uh, and agreeing with this. But what's the what's the answer if you agree these people have a point? How can this ever change? The, this is the answer. The answer is not having a top down model, um, but a priesthood of believers where we're listening to the different songs and different genres and different styles from lots of different people. That's how you mix things up. It's when 18 people are writing songs that are going around the world, they're all going to kind of start to sound the same, especially when all 18 of those people are white. And most of them are male. Again, too male, too pale. If you're a black worship leader, you're putting it into this gospel genre. That is messed up. That is wrong. And worship is is in trouble because of it. So that's why I'm so pumped up about Noel. This is why I'm so pumped up about Rich Butt. I'm so pumped up about some of these African-American guys over in the U.S. We're trying to do everything we can to find non-white, non-male worship leaders and say, how can we help you? Not, not you, need to, you need what we've got. I'm saying worship needs what you've got. You just need to know what you've got. And you need to know how to give it away. I'm always just, I'm always listening for what are the different sounds, what's God doing out there. Um, and what makes me sad is usually like there's more creativity outside of the, you know, quote unquote kingdom of God than is inside it. Um, but maybe that's because they've tapped into um, a more of a priesthood. Everyone brings something, bring an offering. It's 
the weirder the better kind of thing, you know. Uh, but I love, I mean, the reason I, I'm so interested in Sweden and Scandinavia is because Sweden, it's a big country, but I mean, it's not like USSR, you know. Yeah. Um, and out of the top 100 pop songs, Sweden has 33. So this one country has 30% of the pop songs out of the world. So there's something, that something nation there. has something, yeah. you know. There's something unique. And there's all kinds of reasons why. I've tried to study it and read books. Um, but I'm just saying, there's. It, I want to pay attention to what everyone brings. Because mm. in Revelation, when it says, around the throne, every tribe and every tongue, every nation, that, that means our ethnicity goes into eternity. And that's precious to God. So it's precious to God that we are white men, just like it's precious to God when if we were two black men, that we'd be two black men. And that we would be that in eternity mm-hmm. because that's valuable to God. That's, we try to be colorblind. We try not to pay attention, but that's wrong. We should be celebrating what we've got, and mm-hmm. we should be celebrating what others have instead of colonizing others to celebrate what we have. Make sense? So we, the worship world has colonized nations, not... Uh, empowered nations, mm. uh, and that's what we're trying to change. So, even if you listen to um, some of the latest music coming out of Ten Thousand Fathers, um, so I, I recorded a few of those international songs on my last record, um, Through It All. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Crying Holy, I put on there another song called um, uh, It was called I Will Not Forget You, Jesus I Remember You, it was a song out of Denmark. Um, I heard the song in Danish, and I was like, to sing that song in English uh, and then on the 10,000 Fathers projects you're going to find a lot more um, soul a lot more black Ooh. worship leaders a lot more uh, musically interesting stuff because mm. we're just saying we've got to lead the way mm. we can't keep just doing four on the floor YouTube yeah. Coldplay yeah. I love that stuff yeah. that's like home base for me mm-hmm. but I don't want my experience of worship certainly not my congregations to be limited to what I like yeah you know yeah. if if that's all that I can do I'm just not much of a leader if I can only lead people like me I'm not much of a leader yeah. but our church has lots of different colors lots of different races lots of different ages so I want to be able to serve all these people I know that can be tricky sometimes you know but I would rather fail trying to dignify people mm-hmm. than succeed at colonizing them. What, what do you um, know about worship leading now that you wish you'd known 20 years ago? Wow, what a good question. I, the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is what a difference there is between telling my wife I love her and actually loving her. So I, can, I could book a great restaurant get roses, chocolate, champagne, and tell her how much I love her for two hours, okay, for Valentine's. That is so different. I can't be like, I did that, now I don't have to love you the rest of the year. Or I'm clear until next Valentine's. Like, that's it's great to express that. It's, it's vital. You've got to express it. Love that's not expressed um, isn't complete. Got to express it. But just the expression of, or the articulation of my love for my wife is the tip of the iceberg of actually loving her. So actually loving her looks like serving her, dying to myself for her, preferring her, you know what I mean? Like championing her, helping with the kids, uh, all this other stuff that is actually loving her but isn't necessarily telling her. And what I've been thinking about with worship leading is 
let's not confuse telling God how much we love him with actually loving him. There's only one place in the book of Psalms where it says, I love you, Lord. Psalm 18.1. And I think that's a big deal. There, you know, In most of our worship songs, we're real comfortable telling God how much we love him with all that we are. But I wonder if what we should be saying is how little we love him. But we want to love him more. Mm-hmm. It's fine to aspire. It's fine to say, I want to love you with all that I am. Because I do. But I can't honestly, week after week, tell God, I love you with everything in me. When I, I look at my life and I don't. I, I've often thought that when I've been standing in church and a word has come up on the screen or a sentence has come up yeah. on the screen. And sometimes, if I'm being totally honest, it feels like exaggeration when I'm being asked to, asked to sing. You we know? don't tell lies in church, we sing them. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I think it's important that we aspire. It's important that we set ourselves. I mean, we ought to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the command. But we ought not assume that we are doing that just because we're saying that we are doing that. That lip service thing, that's Isaiah 1. Your lips, Jesus talked about it, they, their lips honor me, their hearts are far from me. So I guess the biggest thing that I'm thinking about now is like, I want when I lead worship, I don't want to just get the room fired up about telling God how much they love him. I want people to leave the room and actually love him more faithfully and love him more powerfully and more profoundly more personally we're uh, we're running out of time and we haven't spoken much actually about your music and i wanted to to bring some of that up and talk specifically about some of your songs because as i said at the beginning your music uh, your albums have often been uh, praised for the kind of biblical depth and you mentioned earlier in this interview the importance for you of, of leading worship with with the word of god in your hand as you do it and, and bringing the bible in you arguably have almost created a bit of a name for yourself in that you will write songs that have a lot of biblical imagery in but still in a very accessible way um what, what are some of the songs that you not in a not in a uh, arrogant or prideful way but but you are most happy with i don't want to say most proud of but what are the songs that you think actually yeah, God did give me something there, and that's really communicated something. Because I'd be fascinated to know if they're the same songs that have travelled widely, or if actually your favourite songs aren't the ones that everyone's singing. <laughs> yeah. I never know, man. It's like, I, I I, think part of the creative grace that God gives songwriters is you, you're all the way in it, you know? You think it's great, and it's not until two years later that you go, oh, that really wasn't very good, you know? <laughs> oh, shoot. Um, but I am very thankful for how God has used a few songs, like hearing how a few of the songs have come alongside people and encourages them at some point in their journey in powerful ways. Um, there's a verse in Isaiah where it says, The Sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. Um, I think some of my songs have they've had something of the heart of heaven in them and, and have come along, pe- alongside people to sustain them. So I think of Sovereign Over Us, um, I'm really thankful for that song. Um, I, some of that song was just spontaneous. The whole bridge of that song I wrote spontaneously in Time Worship at my church. Um, a lot of the rest of the lyrics I took a long time to write after struggling with some miscarriages. Um, so I'm grateful for that song. I'm grateful for Psalm 62, My Soul Finds Rest, just because that was the first time I'd written with Stuart, and he was so gracious to me. I mean, Stuart did all the heavy lifting in that song. But I learned so much through writing that song with Stuart. Stuart Townen, this is. Yeah, with yeah. Stuart Townen. Um, I, I still often lead that song Dwell from Psalm 91. Uh, I, guess, I guess I'm just saying, like, any song that's grounded in Scripture is going to have a much longer lifespan than a song that's grounded in what's trendy in a moment. And so, you know, I was in Chicago two, uh, three weeks ago, 
and leading for a church, and they're in a series on spiritual warfare. And they said, well, just take the whole Sunday, lead, teach, do whatever. And I did a whole album, that Dwell album, I basically wrote the whole album around God fights for us as we worship him. He fights principalities and powers to the rhythm of our worship. You know, it's Isaiah, it's Psalm 149, it's 2 Chronicles 20, it's all kinds of stuff. And so songs that I could go back to, like Dwell, where we're singing scripture, we're singing Psalm 91, now we're singing Isaiah 54 in the bridge, no weapon formed against me will prosper. Those things, those don't return void. You mentioned, uh, was it Sovereign Over Us that came out of a difficult time for you, yeah. you and your wife struggling with, with miscarriage, and it, it has been pointed out that a number of the songs that do travel and that we all know so well are the ones that are born out of pain and suffering. Is that an accident, or is God in that somehow? Man, I think we, you know, a lot of the psalms are not pretty. Um, I mean, some scholars say 73, so almost half of the psalms would be technically lament. It's not, hey, God, you're so great. It's, where are you, God? Um, and if seven... and again, it's been said there's not many contemporary worship songs that, that say, where are you, God, and everything feels wrong. Well, and... There's a reason for that. It's because that's a, that's a conscious choice that some of these streams have made to celebrate the victory of the cross, the triumph of the resurrection, the reality of the kingdom. And so we're not going to talk about this other thing. So I went to a writing camp and you know, writing for this big record and they started out by saying we know that things are hard and we struggle but we're not going to I don't want to hear any songs about that we need to write songs about this other and that's just hard for me because I just can't live triumphantly like sure but wouldn't um, you know again others would say but hang on people aren't coming into church to talk you know to, to sing depressing songs right people are coming into church because they need a lift they need to know that, that kind of God's with them in the suffering and so we have to write upbeat songs what would be your response to that? yeah go to a pep rally um, lament doesn't work at a pep rally and I think people aren't coming to church because they need a lift they need to hear from God and if you are breaking down you don't need a lift you need a healer you need you need comfort that's not a lift um, God's near to the brokenhearted. He's not cheering for them. You know, He's near to them. He binds up their wounds. We need to show reality in our worship, not just our piety. That's what you see in the Psalms. Like, there's pitch black darkness in the Psalms. The stuff that was in David's heart, I mean, it is, it's not right, but it was real. You know, and what I love about the Bible is that God would rather us be honest than accurate <laughs> and that's that's the powerful thing about lament to be able to tell him why we're mad at him he's big enough for that um, for us to be to accuse him like I don't ever want to be irreverent but I think it's ultimately reverent for bring my to bring my complaint to God otherwise I just complain about God that's the ultimate irreverence so either we bring this to God or we really dishonor God and begin distancing ourselves from Him. So I think we have no choice. We have to acknowledge all of life. Um, Stuart said it well. I was with him this summer in New York City. He said, you know, we're writing more songs than ever, but we're writing about fewer things than ever. I think that's really powerful. Um, and I just think we've got to have more songs about the struggle, about our doubt. The kingdom is big enough for that stuff. God's not threatened by any of that stuff. We might be, because we like the idea of, as long as we're good, then nothing's going to happen to our family and our kids, you know. But Job just cuts right through that. So 
Jesus cuts right through that. He couldn't have been more perfect. You know, look what the world did to him. So it's like, we've got to be more honest and have a wider panorama than just this little sliver of of what how much we love God and how perfect our life is going to be. I don't think that... I think it would be so powerful for the world if instead of saying our churches is judgmental, hypocritical, perfectionist, all this stuff, if we were saying, we struggle too. We're broken too. We just, we found hope in it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're grieving too. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. Like, I've buried too many of my friends to believe that every time I pray for someone, they're going to be healed anymore. Like, I still pray for them. I still want them to be healed. I believe God can. Mm-hmm. I've seen them do it. Mm-hmm. But he hasn't healed every single one of them. Mm. But that doesn't keep me from praying. Yeah. Well, Aaron, we've we've covered so much ground uh, over the past hour. Final question, though. You've you said before that uh, you're here, obviously, at the Mission Worship Conference. You've been here many, many times before. Looking forward to a great weekend. So what's the vision, though? What's your prayer between now and next year where you're back in this hotel room, uh, <laughs> back for another year of mission worship? What's your vision for yourself? And perhaps also about you know some of the deep subjects we've covered um, what is your hope and your prayer for how your life or how the worship scene will look different in 12 months time I guess I just hope that our love for God is actually still faithful it's going deeper we're getting to know him better and um, we're seeing more of his kingdom more of his power and that's going out into the world not just in our bubble you know, Israel was, was blessed to be a blessing to the world. They kind of lost that second half of it. Um, but if you look in, oh, man, my brain is tired. I'm jet lagged. Uh, Psalm 67, it says, God bless us, be gracious, cause your face to shine upon us, that your way would be known to the ends of the earth. That's my hope, is that a year from now, everything that God does in Eastbourne would have gone further than Eastbourne. Everything that God's done in my life would have gone further than my life. We receive God's blessings so that we can be channels of it. You know, we are elected not to the exclusion of everyone else, but for the benefit of everyone else. We aren't fighting against the world. We're fighting for the world. I hope that we're actually, like, changing our cities and our neighborhoods, not just singing about how much we love God, but actually showing the world how much we love God. Well, Aaron, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for talking to us. Sam. That was my interview with the worship leader, Aaron Keyes. If you would like to hear more interviews from the team here at Premier Christian Radio, you can go to our website. It's premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. And you can also access all of these past interviews we've done with well-known Christians from across the globe as a podcast. A final reminder that this show is brought to you in association with the magazine that I helped put together. That's Premier Christianity magazine. If you would like a free sample copy, simply visit our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. We'd be delighted to send you a free copy of the latest edition. But coming up next here on Premier Christian Radio, it's Premier Playback with Dave Rose.